Hello and welcome to the Rock Paper Shotgun Electronic Wireless Show. I'm Brendan. We're going to be doing a little bit of a different format this episode and for the following few episodes. Normally we would all get together talk about the games we play it amongst ourselves, but this time we're going to be talking to developers in the run-up to the Independent Games Festival about the games that they've created. We're going to be bunching them together in interviews and talking to them about a particular theme. This time we're talking to the creators of Event Zero, Quadrilateral Cowboy and Duskers, about science fiction in games. I'm here now with three of those developers, uh, the first of which is Sergei Mohod from Ocelot Society, creators of Event Zero. Brendan Chung is also here, he's from Blendo Games, the creators of Quadrilateral Cowboy. And Tim Keenan from Misfits Attic, the creators of Duskers. Yeah, so I thought it would be good, I think, just for anyone who doesn't know uh, or isn't familiar with your games to explain some of them, to let you guys explain your games in maybe a sentence or a couple of sentences. Uh, so let's start with you, Sergey. What's Event Zero all about? Uh, so Event Zero is a narrative exploration game, a first-person uh, narrative exploration game uh, that happens on an abandoned spaceship. And the whole idea of the game is that you have to talk to an artificial intelligence of the spaceship by actually typing uh, words and sentences into computer terminals in different rooms of the of the spaceship and uh, build. Um, you have to build the relationship with this AI throughout the game, and that's how you kind of progress in the story and uh, hopefully get back to Earth. Okay. Uh, Tim, what about Duskers? Uh, so Duskers is a game where you pilot drones into derelict spaceships to try and figure out why everybody's dead. Normally I can say it has a command line interface, and that seems like a unique thing, but in this group, uh, <laughs> that's just sort of run-of-the-mill. Uh, it's It blends a couple different genres in. I mean, there's... It's sort of real time, and it's got uh, it's a roguelike, and it, it's just a odd conglomeration of elements. But essentially, yeah, you're trying to figure out how to get through the ship, and it's got an aliens vibe to it, where you're kind of trying to avoid conflict and not have bad things happen to you. Okay, uh, and Brendan, what about uh, Quadrilateral Cowboy? Yeah, so Quadrilateral Cowboy is a cyberpunk first-person game where you play as a member of a hacking crew, and uh, you and your gang, they're hired out to do heists for other big mega corporations to do horrible things to other people. Um, so it's all about planning heists and kind of breaking into buildings and uh, kind of bypassing security systems. All right, okay. Well, they're all science fiction games. They've all got a lot of things in common, actually. They've all been nominated for an excellence in design at the IGA, so congratulations to you all for that. Thank you. Thanks. But something that's noticeable in all of them is the influence of film on them all. 
with Duskers, you get a feel of Alien, Event Zero, a little bit of that as well, but also 2001 Space Odyssey. Quadrilateral Cowboys, more, maybe no film in particular, but heist films in general, with jump cuts and scenes in between what you do. I guess an open question to start off is, do you feel, do any of you feel that games rely too much on film for their science fiction ideas, or just enough, or maybe not enough? Um, Personally, I think uh, that everything is going to, there's a lot of things that are going to influence you, and I think that what's really cool about these games, in my opinion, is, is that they were influenced in the right areas. I think too many times uh, game developers try to make a game that's like a movie, and our medium has strengths and weaknesses, and one of the strengths is interaction. And so I think what's really cool in, in film is that they can get across some storytelling and some visuals and audio and, and like really create an atmosphere. And I think that in all three of these games, those analogies that you make are all describing the atmosphere of the game, but the games hold up on their own because of the gameplay systems and the interaction and using that to further that atmosphere and that feeling rather than just saying, all right, we're going to try and emulate this. It's like, we're going to, we're going to go beyond that because of what the medium allows. Yeah. What do you think, Sergey? Well, I think that, yes, I absolutely agree with that. And also, I think that, um, I think that's, uh, based on what kind of game you're making, you can actually play off of the tropes that, uh, film has established over, over the decades that film has been around. And, um, people kind of come to expect certain things, uh, from, from like video game characters and from, well, in our case, artificial intelligences. And we kind of use this to our advantage. Uh, to sort of subvert this stereotype and to and to to play off of it. So the AI in Event Zero, for example, um, tries to tries to kind of play off of the fact that people will kind of assume by default that it is evil. Like uh, Hal in 2001: Space Odyssey, for example, was kind of evil. Yeah. And uh, and uh, actually, the AI in Event Zero is not evil, but people kind of assume that the AI is hiding something from them. Uh, whereas the AI doesn't really just, maybe, maybe just doesn't understand what you're saying, but it's gonna try to seem like it is hiding something from you. And it's kind of like, the film gave us this opportunity to try and test some sort of human perception of, uh, of these characters. And yeah, it's, it's very, it's very interesting and it's very beneficial actually for yeah. the, for the game indeed. Uh, Brendan, with your games, I, I'm guessing from what I've played of Blackendo Games' back catalog that you're a big film buff. Oh yeah, I love movies, and I, I mean I I love it when games kind of like involve other forms of media, like um like when games involve a lot of like movie cinematic influences, um like theatrical stuff. Like when you play Kentucky Route Zero, it feels like you're watching this weird play that's also a game at the same time. Um, I like when movies when games kind of introduce like a lot of literary literary things. Um, and like I feel like what Tim was talking about, like the the trick is the hard part is how do you take in these influences but still make your game operate like a game? Like how do you make it like satisfying as a game? Like you can you can introduce cinematic influences, but if you kind of just make the player um, sit there and watch this really long cinematic, that's really beautiful and really well made, but um, kind of in my opinion doesn't really take full advantage of the the media of games and being interactive um then i think kind of like something kind of gets lost in translation um but like in the the three games here where we all kind of try to integrate things from other influences but still always have the player be in control and always have the player be part of the conversation um i think that's that's kind of when it starts working for me 
Yeah, there's a, there's another thing that all your games have in common, and we've talked about it. They all involve typing commands or words into a computer in some way, which is an old device that was used out of necessity before, but is now suddenly being used in a different way. Why did each of you go with this kind of design? Sergey, let's start with you. Well, it was the most natural way of interacting with a computer, right? You're just sitting in front of it, and there is always a keyboard in front of you. This is sort of like, why, why would, why are we only using the keyboards to, you know, to press four buttons on them, whereas we could actually use the whole keyboard to, to express ourselves? And this is kind of like the thing where, uh, where something that was kind of natural to people came to them as an idea first, which is how it happened in the, you know, in the 60s and 70s and 80s, where people started just implementing the interfaces that felt natural to them when they were sitting in front of the computer. So what were they going to do? They're going to type like, like you would in a text editor or in an email. And uh, this is something that we sort of like drifted uh, apart uh, from in the game industry with the controllers and like more and more complex game systems. And we kind of wanted to go back to that and to use the computer in a more natural way, sort of. Uh, what about you, Brandon? Uh, yeah, like for me, I I grew up using MS DOS to use my uh, as an operating system, uh, just use a command like console. Um, I grew up like learning QBasic as my first kind of programming thing and just making horrible, horrible games. And like when Windows came out and when computers become more modern, um, that stuff slowly got phased out, and I kind of missed it. You kind of see the influence on games. Like when games have hacking sections, the hacking is done through uh, you play a mini game, or you you match colors, or you play you play a pipe matching game. And I really like was aching in my heart for a game where like where hacking was done to actually typing commands in. Um, so when Uplink came out, I was like, this is Beautiful because there were there were some parts in Uplink where you had to actually like type commands in and it felt so good. Oh my god, uh, Uplink! Oh my yes. God. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So when when I when the opportunity for Quadra Cowboy came along, I really connected to it in a strong way. What about you, Tim? Is is it the same kind of nostalgia for command line interfaces that made you make that design decision? Um, I definitely have that nostalgia and I definitely love that, but I would say that was like a a benefit afterwards. So I guess there's sort of like a two-part answer. Like the first part is, is like dumb luck. And the second part is where I act all artsy fartsy and act like I actually did this on purpose. But <laughs> we, we originally had uh, the drones going in there and, um, you know, a friend had said that it should be, you know, space Marines because we care more about space Marines than we do like people than we do about drones. Um, and I was thinking almost the opposite where like, I was like, if I can make you care about that drone, um, that would be really cool. And, you know, the tech was, I wanted the tech to be kind of janky and kind of old. And so the command line started to make sense. Um, but then when the, I, I believe when you're designing things in order to get things holistic, you start having these, these sort of design pillars that things kind of move around. And sometimes for me, those design pillars are, are more emotions than they are features. And the thing that I kept getting back to was this sense of isolation because you were out in the middle of space and there was no one else there and you had these drones and it was and everything was pointing toward this sense that you were alone and i got kind of obsessed with this relationship that we have with technology um where you know it it empowers us and allows us to connect to each other through like let's say facebook right but then also we think that we're connected to people and we don't sit down and have conversations as much like i think that 
I've talked to a friend that lives in Atlanta and it's amazing that I can do this, but I don't pick up the phone because I think we're connected and, and, and that phone time is, or even that FaceTime is a totally different thing. So when you're speaking, you start to develop this relationship with these drones. And when you're speaking to them, the fact that you have to type these commands in, it's in this very broken English, you know, command liney sort of way, sort of in the back of your mind reinforces that like, I really care about Bob, but Bob is a computer. He's a robot. He's not a person. And like that weird sense of like, I care about this thing, but I full well know this is a toaster that like, I'm just (laughs) telling to like move right or move left is like, it just kind of, it it creates this odd sense in your brain that I really wanted to play with this, this technology and this isolation. Yeah. And it's significant that you can rename your toasters to be, you know, whatever you want in a similar way to X poems. So you're, if you lose Jimbo, your you know, your heart is broken. <laughs> right. Like in a weird way, what I wanted, what I really wanted was, is, is that for you to imbue these things with personality and like anthropomorphize them, but then know and be constantly aware that you are doing that. And if I could do that, then you would think you were crazy. <laughs> and I think if you were in a spaceship alone, you would kind of go crazy. <laughs> yeah. Um, you mentioned Uplink as well, Brendan. And it's not it's not alone actually. I mean, it was quite early for for these kinds of games, but there's been a rash of them recently. There's Hacknet, there's uh, Hack Mud, there's there's your game. I mean, is there something in the water here? Even three of the games nominated for excellence of design in this year's idea, out of I think it's six or seven games, all have you typing out rushed commands in some way. I mean, is there what, what is going on? Self-expression, right? Because you can just type wherever you want. And like, we have this idea that maybe at some point we will be able use, to use like an interface kind of like Siri, but they're just so bad that people just like, it doesn't even understand my accent. And like, like what, what would it understand if I was like even speaking some other language other than English? It would, it doesn't work. Whereas like in typing things into a computer that just sort of just works out of the box and it allows you to just, you know, type kind of whatever you want. It's all about your imagination. And I think that appeals to people a lot, like this freedom of saying things. Even if it's commands, it's still, you know, you're free to type whatever you want. Yeah. Um, I think if I had to make a guess, maybe one of the things that kind of started this kind of surge of hacking uh, kind of interface games is um, I think maybe the people who grew up using these interfaces are kind of now at an age where they actually have the freedom to actually make their own games now. And they actually have some income to actually make their own whatever they want now. And so the people who grew up having this kind of connection to this kind of interface um, are now part of, are now adults and they're now part of the workforce and now they can actually make things. And, I think sometimes you're you're greatly influenced by things that you grow up with, and in this case, it might be just command interfaces. There are differences between all of your games, obviously. Whereas, you know, in Duskers and Quadrilateral Cowboy, typing is often about speed and planning. Event Zero, you're more trying to coax information out of a bot. So, Sergey, uh, how do you make a bot act just human enough to be likable, you know, but still retain some weirdness? 
Well, a lot of it is just smoke and mirrors, right? You, you can't, like, we don't really have artificial intelligence on this level that exists in, like, in the real world. That is not, like, a thing. But the thing is, uh, if you're clever about it, you can make it seem like the AI understands you, like, really well, even though it only understood a couple of keywords, or even if it doesn't understand anything. You can make it seem like it is hiding something from you, and the and the the idea is to sort of is what I said earlier is that like we play off of these uh, stereotypes that people have uh, about these these assumptions that people have about like artificial intelligences and these uh, you know conversational agents and bots uh, that they are first of all nobody expects clever bot to be you know a perfect uh, you know conversation partner everybody thinks like people have tried those things they have tried Alice they have tried Eliza and people know that these things are kind of broken even like Siri is not very smart you know but uh, at the same time so they, they already like the bar is not very high sort of because you don't expect them to actually respond like a human and Every time they do say something coherent, you're happy because it's something that you have achieved. It's like reward in and of itself, just typing something and having even like a short conversation. It feels rewarding. It feels like something that you did. And the other thing is that it is, it is like really important to sort of hide the, uh, you know, the game mechanics, the gamey things uh, away from the player. It should feel like a conversation. So. Because because if we try to display all of the sort of internal works of the of the AI like like you would see in a game like Assassin's Creed for example you see all of these like game systems sticking out of each corner and like we didn't want to do this because we wanted the player to sort of get immersed in this conversation and we did that by just like hiding completely all of the internal workings of the AI and just leaving you with this like blank command line that you just type anything with your keyboard. And then somehow through the magic of this black box, it just, you know, comes up with a response. And very often this response is going to correspond to what you have said. And you kind of just eventually this sort of suspension of disbelief kicks in and you, and you just start believing this. Yes, this is actually a character. And it, it is, it is, it is a process. It is, it is not something that like not everybody immediately gets into the experience, but uh, when they do, they're usually pretty happy because it's something that they have actually said themselves. It's not, it's not like we're not giving you like a pre-selected number of pre-written number of responses. You can just say whatever. And when the AI responds correctly, you're happy and you feel like you feel rewarded for what you have done. And you also tend to feel empathy to whatever it is that gave you the reward. Uh, I was going to say just, I think that's just for me, like that's kind of what made Event Zero so satisfying is that Whereas a lot of games where your reward is um, getting a higher score or, you know, getting more gold or seeing a number go up. I think Event Zero is just about the game is all about just connecting to this entity and just like having conversations with it and trying to figure out how to talk to it. And there's something really satisfying about that, whereas like the game is not about destroying as many things as you can or, or accruing, um, you know, more more money for yourself. Um it's just about this weird personal connection, um, and that, I think that made it very special to me. Yeah, and I mean, um, even if uh, there isn't, even if it doesn't make a exactly correct response and is a little bit broken or you know daft, you can still often read into it. I mean, I swore a lot at the computer whenever I arrived. <laughs> I, would, I was very, very abusive to it, and you could detect in the way it was responding 
or I could detect a certain coldness and like passive aggressiveness, but <laughs> that could have just been me reading into it how a, a normal reply would be after someone had been sworn at. Um, well, some of it, some of it is actually in the system. Like the AI actually has these emotional states that you make it transition from like from one to another by saying things like when you're insulted, it will probably get angry or it will stop trusting you or stuff like that. But the thing is, it's not perfect. It doesn't like, it doesn't like perfectly understand what you're saying. That would be impossible. But still, like the fact that we hit this system from you, you're kind of, you're kind of like filling in the blanks yourself, you know? Yeah. I mean, people would do that even with, uh, did any of you see that CBots chat channel? It was two clever bots, I think, just talking to each other, like, a, <laughs> yeah. like a waiting for Gato production. Um, <laughs> And people would take screenshots of it, and I did it even, where they would be talking about something. And obviously, it's, it's, it's kind of directed nonsense. But when you're there, when you're there to cast a human eye over it, it feels like they're actually talking. <laughs> I mean, that, that's the thing about fiction in general. When we're talking about like artificial intelligence in, in any kind of fiction, in like, when you read the Zim of stories, for example, when you're, like you're watching a movie like, you know, uh, Stalin's one or something like that. You, it's kind of like, it, it, it is like, we assume that it's a story about this AI thing, computer, but it's actually a story about like the people who are interacting with it always invariably. Like it's always about the human, like the actual character in 2001, a space odyssey is, is Dave. It's not hell. And that's kind of like, as humans, we kind of like, we're interested in human stories, but when, you know, when you put an AI in a story, we kind of like, yeah, this is a story about the AI. No, it's always the story about us. And this is what makes them appealing. In Duskers, meanwhile, you're, you're up in space as well, but it's in, it's unsettling in a, in a slightly different way. There's a lot of nasty stuff up there and it's kind of about making do with these junky drones that you have and their particular abilities or skills but individually they're quite weak and you're never really on a on an even platform with what you're dealing with in terms of the the enemies why do you put the player in such a tough position tim why why aren't you giving us a break <laughs> i'm definitely a sadist like none of my games all of my games are just mean to the player uh because they you know i don't know there was a bad forum post one time when i was young no uh the I think it's it's a similar there there's kind of sort of some parallels here where like in event zero you're going through and you're you're trying to discover what's happening and you know a lot of things are obfuscated to you um and it's the same thing like I think what happens is is that you're going through this these spaceships and that sense of isolation that I wanted to have uh was just so it's just so well done in like horror and uh and in horror especially as an indie I find a lot of times, like, you know, if you, if I try to make a AAA produced, like, you know, um, visually stunning game, it's just going to take me too long and I'm probably not going to do a good job of it. And sort of like what we're talking about when you're talking to the AI in Event Zero and maybe you interpret what it says. I love the idea that it could say the same thing to two players and they could interpret it differently. Um and so it's the same thing, like what we do in Duskers a lot of time is we do not give you information on purpose, and I want to know what you take out of that. So 
everything from in the game when you're looking at the through the drone view. I wanted it to look like a Rorschach test. I wanted it to be really weird, and I wanted you to see shapes and be like, "Is that what is that? Is that is that a skull? No, 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 no. Is that a teddy bear? Like, what what is is that a pipe?" Um, and let your mind play games with you. And it's super fun to read. We didn't even name the enemies. So on the forums, people would be talking about them, and they would be mixing up different enemy types. And then everyone was like, oh, my God, is there a new enemy type? Because someone, like, you know, misphrased something, and some people would call them, you know, by different names and stuff like that. So it sort of created this mystery atmosphere, which I, I kind of loved. And I think that that really works in the game. I mean, it's the same way that you have a motion sensor, right? And then all of a sudden it goes off. And then it leaves the room or whatever, and, it, and and you're like, where did it go? And what is it? And I always felt, I mean, it's the classic Jaws analogy or anything like that. Like, if we let you run around in your mind, it's going to be way more interesting and intense than if we put everything down on the board for you. So, um, yeah, we're totally using the power of imagination, just sort of like they are in Event Zero. Yeah, I was gonna say that like that's the, that's one of the reasons why I love Dusker so much is that like it, it, the game like it, it doesn't it's not explicit about anything and the, in terms of like the, the interface seems so like so pure and simple and everything is like you know uh, just lines and the drones aligns and everything is like and then the thing is like why while you're playing it you, the game puts you in these like really intense situations. That like when you get into these situations, you start to get emotional, just like because we're humans and that's what we do, and we are always emotional about things. And you get attached to these little drones that like they don't have any humanity in them, but you kind of like start attaching meaning to them where like there was no meaning to begin with, it's just like you know, just lines on the on the screen. And it's, it is like your your personal your personality that you're projecting on these things and it is reflected back at you and that gives you like this experience that wouldn't have wouldn't have been possible with something more explicit i think and i love it so much it's so cool the thing that's really interesting about uh the drones is that i always intended like i said before for you to uh anthropomorphize them right and then start to care about them and then and then know that you were doing that But what I didn't anticipate that was really interesting as time was going on is I started to realize, like, one of the things I think that makes people empathize with them so much and get so upset when they're gone is is that there's this sense that the drone didn't do it. The drone, you said to go to room seven. The drone didn't necessarily want to go to room seven. And then when something went wrong in that room and you couldn't, it just sits there and it's just like, ow, ow, ow. And it's like, <laughs> you're, it's your fault, Tim. You did this. And so it really starts to feel like a pet. Like, or like a small child or something where like, this isn't my fault. You put me here and now I'm getting hurt and it's your job to get me out of here. And so that like real dependence on you creates this sort of like paternal for me, like relationship. Maybe it's because I have a daughter now. I don't know. But then I start to be like, I start to think of it as a child or a pet or something that like I feel responsible for because I have a different level of understanding. And so that's why I feel so guilty if I vented into space. I'm just like, oh my God. The datafication of games continues. <laughs> but like, I mean, but you're also you're also dependent on them. Like, it's not always a one-way street because if you lose a drone, you do feel like, oh, like part of you feels like, oh no, little Graham's gone out the airlock, or you know, oh no, Alice has been covered in this horrible mossy growing stuff that is consuming her. But you also feel like, oh no. Alice had the generator, and I need that to power the ships. So you feel like 
you know, you're reliant on them as well. Yeah, and that's the power of, I think, roguelikes, right, is is that, like, everything is so precious because it's permanent. And so I really did – the uh, another sort of pillar that I kind of fell into is realism, uh, just because – uh, you know, how to make an intense experience where there's, you feel isolated. It has to feel real. And so that was another thing. I wanted people to not just, you know, barge in and be like, oh, well, like this drone died or whatever. Like if I was really doing this in real life and I lost my generator drone, that would be huge because now I can't move on. And eventually I'm just going to sit in a dare and like in the, in the ship that I have and, you know, just die because I can't progress. Uh, and so that was another reason that the, I think that the command line helped us is that we made your screen your actual computer screen. And, you know, Sergey was talking about this a little bit, but I, I think it was, that was very powerful for people because now all of a sudden you are the drone operator and like you are in the spaceship. And so many players say that they put the headphones on, they turn the lights off and their screen is the actual screen and they're in a spaceship and they imagine that. And so like, I think that that adds something to it that you're sitting in your keyboard is your keyboard and your monitor is your monitor. Um, and I think that that the back going back to the command line, um, that's what sort of helps because you do feel that maybe if you were this drone operator in space, you might be controlling these remote drones with these commands. Um, to move on to quadrilateral cowboy now, um, it is a lot brighter. It's a lot less scary. It's got its own twists and turns and you describe it as 20th century cyberpunk, Brendan, right? Uh, so there's heists and action scenes and robots with, you know, admonishing messages displayed on their chests and all sorts of stuff. Um, why is that alternative reality so appealing to you? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I really like it when things are, um, like I think technology now, it kind of trends toward being really sleek and really chic and really sexy and really like clean. And for some reason, that stuff just does not really appeal to me. Like, I like it. I like it when, um, when, when you press a button and like you feel that tactile click and like it makes a noise and it has resistance. Um, and they press the buttons now, they're like touch screens or tablets and, uh, you just kind of like mash your finger on this flat screen. Um, which is fine. And like, I understand why they do that now. And it, it's totally better in so many ways. But, uh, like, I, I want to get back to back when technology was kind of clunkier, but was, had this kind of like substantial feel to it. Like, this, they had weight. They had, uh, uh, kind of like this bit of substance to them. Um, and so I tried to make all the stuff and technology and the doors and the buttons in the world just very clunky and ugly and like difficult to use, but, um, but like mechanical. And like when things are mechanical, you can kind of like understand them and see the moving parts. Um, which I, I feel that nowadays gadgets that I use, they're kind of like black boxes and I don't know what's happening inside them anymore. One of the things it does differently as well is you can, you can compete with your own friends, uh, on a leaderboard to see who can pull off whatever heist the fastest possible. And yeah. Things, which, which is different, I guess, from Sergey and Tim's standalone, you know, it, it's a single player, you're alone, you're isolated kind of thing, except for your robot friend. <laughs> yeah, uh, there's a, there's a very, very, very loose fiction in the world where, where in this world it is legal for companies to, uh, hire out 
a kind of hit hit crews to um, sabotage each other and to uh, kind of steal each other's data and things like that. So when you read like the fine print of all the contracts in your little hideout, there's all these little like clauses about being able to uh, about these mega corporations and their many rights and things that they can do. Um, it's a horrible, horrible universe. And uh, one of the, the gag of the leaderboard is that this is like the public kind of high score list of all of these these hit crews and uh, the horrible things that they're doing. Yeah, I think one of my favorite things to do is to run around with post-it notes. <laughs> because when you leave a post-it notes, it's like a Dark Souls message, and you know your friends can read it. And I would just leave them everywhere, either to distract my friends from going fast enough, or to just yeah. kind of just jibe them, just <laughs> troll them while they're trying to figure something out. Yeah. So yeah, the way that works is that uh, when you so the player has this weapon that they can use called the post-it note, and they can just post a little post-it note anywhere in the world, and they can write any messages that they want, and it'll propagate onto all of the uh, maps in their friends list. Uh, so if I'm in your friends list, then I will see the note that you wrote. And I I, I did that because I, I have a deep, deep love for multiplayer games, but I don't have the technical expertise to actually do it at all, because it's really hard to do. And so trying just just aping the the Dark Souls thing is uh, my approach to trying to uh, tackle that that desire. <laughs> to jump back for a second to what Brendan was saying about like clunky interfaces and stuff like that. Um, sorry, I, I just it's something that really resonates so much with me. Like the fact that back when um, I watched Star Wars for the first time and the X wing and the Y wing, like they weren't these sexy, sleek, <laughs> futuristic curved you know perfect things i was like what in the hell is that and i got obsessed with it and then i started thinking about it. i'm like wait a minute if you go out on the highway today you're not going to see everything from you know i don't know at the time i was having this epiphany you know it's probably like you know and like you know the mid 80s or something like that but you're not going to see like you know modern cars you're going to see a bunch of like broken out down old things from 20 years ago and it was the resistance right um, and I kind of had that obsession too. Like I, I, there was a game at, at, at PAX that was, that's called Objects in Space. And they actually had a setup where they had knobs and buttons and switches and stuff like that. And it was a very lo-fi interface, but you could f- feel it. You know, you, you flipped up the switch and pressed the button. And it's just like, we've kind of lost that in a way. Um, cause when I was growing up, I know with like the Atari, you had like this controller and it had all these numbers and buttons and a dial. And I know that we have all these alternative interfaces now, and that's really interesting. But yeah, I mean, like, you do start to realize that even when we sit here in, like, a keyboard and mouse era, or, you know, a gamepad era, that, like, even the keyboard, we're just using the keyboard now, right? And it's like, whoa! Because, like, everyone just uses everything sort of the same way. Um, so I do think that there's, like, a real power in that and something really cool, and it might just be because I'm an old man. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I feel that this stuff that used to be so widespread, then it kind of disappeared. And so it just feels like a ripe time to come back to it because like people just haven't, for the most part, kind of often don't see it being used in this context anymore. I'm just thinking right now, like if I took a, like a Walkman and I hit play and the button presses down and then it clicks and then I can mm-hmm. feel the gears turning to start to, to play that tape, right? Like that's like a yeah. thing. You know, that like a lot of people might not experience. And I think when I was playing that objects in space, when I was flipping the button and I could hear something move and like, you know, <laughs> it's just like, 
I, it's so simple, but I was just like, I haven't felt that in a long time. And is like, this, I, that used to be a thing. Is this why, uh, a lot of games that hark back to the retro or, you know, an era of 10 or 20 years ago all have the 56k modem sign, dial up sign? <laughs> because, because it's this rallying cry for a generation who grew up waiting, you know, uh, uh, 30 seconds to a minute to get onto the internet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, I actually feel that like we live in an era that is kind of weird in terms of interfaces. We're not exactly in the future yet. We like we still need our mouses, like our mice and our keyboards, and like the iPhone is like a thing, and like the touch screen is nice, but we don't really have voice control yet that actually works well. We don't like it works like as well as it does, but it's not perfect, and nobody wants to yell at their connects to move their character in Mass Effect, for example, and uh, we we don't really have like. Uh, you know, we don't have this futuristic, like, real, like, incredibly, like, touch-based interfaces, like, HoloLens is sort of, like, in development, and, like, we're still yet to see that used in, like, widespread culture, and with, like, the, you know, like, the Amazon Echo and the Siri and all of these things, like, they kind of work, but they're, like, really not perfect yet, and we're kind of living this, like, transition period where, it kind of like to me it's like it, it it is like a lot of it is like nostalgia for like this purity of like okay the technology is this and it ends here and we can dream about like how it's going to be in the future but we're not in this like sort of transition weird period where we're not sure yet whether we're using keyboards or or you know like uh, voice recognition for inputs it, it, it was it was much purer before in that sense somehow i just i just uh, love it in the, quadrilateral cowboy where you have things that are made like you said tim you know the x-wings or the millennium falcon looks like it's made out of junk and so so do the little like you know what do you call them little weavers weevils that oh yeah the little weevil that you um control to hop over things like they look like they're made out of uh like (laughs) meccano bits or whatever yeah, I think that's what I love so much about his games is, is that like when I go into them, I feel like I'm in a world and that world is not one that I would have dreamed up, but it's one that totally makes sense to me, even though it's sort of in ways it can be kind of hyperbolic where it's like, you know, it, it, almost like a like a Tarantino film or something like that, where there's like a lot going on and like things are kind of almost surreal. But yet it all makes sense to me and it all kind of is cohesive and feels right Yet it's such a skewed view on things. And that's kind of amazing to me. Like whenever I like, I just, I don't think like that. And it's so cool when I see something and I'm like, that is a box, but that is completely, I'm completely empathizing with that as if it is a face, you know, and don't get me wrong. There's a texture and stuff like that. You know, I mean, it's just when you have that sort of stuff, like it's just amazing when you're, when you enter into a world and you're just like, this is this makes sense to me, but is so different. Yeah, I guess that's an important thing to point out to anyone who's listening who hasn't played any any of your games, Brendan. Everything is quite boxy, and the characters are, you know, these moving rectangles, you know, cuboid figures that just go about their business. And yet, you know, they, they all have certain characteristics and get into scrapes, you know. Yeah. It, it, that kind of started because like I can't do human characters. <laughs> like I I tried to model actual real human being, beings and like I was technically incapable, um, which ended up kind of being a, a blessing in disguise because I think that I think that the, the more you abstract things down, kind of like what, what Tim was saying with Duskers, that when you really abstract things down, it kind of invites the player to like 
involve themselves into the art. Like, how do I see it? Or how does the, how does the player see it? Um, and I think that kind of adds this extra thing to the game, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess talking about the worlds that you're creating brings us on to a broader question about places that you might create, all three of you as... Um as game makers, I mean, if, do you want your science fiction worlds to be happy places or fearful places or unusual dystopias? I mean, what is your ideal kind of science fiction world? Uh, well, to me, it's got to be interesting to begin with. And you can only like the world is only interesting when there is some kind of conflict at the center of it. If it's if it's completely utopian and everything is perfect and everything is like everybody has always wanted, then, well, w- what is the story about them? There's nothing to tell anymore. Everything is fine. So to me, it's kind of like it's got to have some kind of conflict, but it also has to the conflict has to be human, even even if like you're operating drones or you're like uh, trying to 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 hack robots or you're trying to talk to an artificial intelligence of a spaceship, you kind of like you are doing this as in you, the human, and there's got to be some kind of human story behind the whole thing. Uh, which is what we humans empathize with more most and then this in turn kind of like lets us project this sort of empathy onto the you know artificial things that are there in the science fiction and like to me this kind of like human angle is like very important and i think this is what I mean, like, Event Zero was, like, largely inspired by Asimov's robot stories, and all of those stories are about, like, human characters and how they react to to artificial intelligence, to, you know, to, to robots, essentially, how they handle these, like, relationships that would never have been possible in a world where artificial intelligence was not where it was in Asimov's stories. So I wanted to kind of explore that more with Event Zero and to actually give the artificial intelligence agency to uh, talk back at the player and to actually interact with them and to start building a relationship uh, with the player. And they, and the AI in Vendor actually builds like a quantifiable relationship with you because it remembers everything that you have said to it and all of the emotional states that it has been throughout the game. And in the end, that actually influences how you how you end up like going back to Earth or not, and like what what is happening, what will happen in the story and everything. So it's kind of like uh, you, the human, kind of determines what uh, what what this story is about, and how you perceive it will also impact the outcome. And I, I think this is what's like to me, it's important in science fiction in general. Uh, Brandon, have you me- already made perfect sci-fi universe that you you want? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, I just. The main, the main thing that I try to focus on is how do I make this world as uh, believable as I can? Like, how do I, if some, if someone looks at it, can they see all the pieces kind of connecting to each other? Like, when you build a room, can you kind of, in your mind, visualize the person doing their day to day business here? Like, why is the trash can there instead of there? Because clearly it would be there because it'll be more convenient to put it there so that when they're writing papers, they can throw it with their right hand to that still trash can over there. Um, like when you put buttons that control doors, are the buttons in believable places? And like, can you actually see people functioning in this world? 
And I think that for me, like when I when I watch movies or play games or read books in which I could kind of get this feeling that the creator kind of has thought this out and like all the pieces kind of all intersect with each other in these really clean ways. It just kind of gives me it kind of gives me this extra confidence in the world that if the author puts so much thought into this aspect, they probably put a lot of thought into all the other aspects. And that kind of just like, I don't know, it kind of brings me into the piece of work uh, in this way that, that I just kind of like want to stay there. And I just want to hear more about these things that are happening here. And I think that's kind of what I what I like in these in games like these, where I just want to feel you know, invited into these worlds. Tim is the uh, is the terrifying space desert of Duskers, the kind of place that you think is the perfect sci-fi universe. <laughs> I don't. It's interesting. Yeah, it, it, I didn't mean to go as as dark as I did on Duskers. <laughs> it just kind of went down this rabbit hole because all of a sudden I was just like, well. You know, at first everyone wasn't dead. At first it was like a buddy comedy where it was like, you know, like Han and Chewie. <laughs> it was like, it was like Han and Chewie or like, uh, or, or Cowboy Bebop where like, you know, like you're, you have this get rich quick scheme and you go to the, basically the Bermuda Triangle of space to try and like, you know, rob as much as you can and you owe gangsters money or whatever. And then like everything about the game. You know, I'm going to blame everything on the game. <laughs> Somewhere there's a dark place in my mind because everything about the game just kept getting darker and darker because it started. And then I was like, I was like, wait a minute. Like if, if, if we're exploring derelict spaceships instead of like the Bermuda Triangle, isn't it more powerful if like the entire like universe is a Bermuda Triangle? Like everything's dead. And then I'm like, and if everybody's dead, then how did they die? And if you're the last person there, then why are you there? And if we died, you know, was it because of some cosmic event or is it probably because we did it? And if we did it, was would a war really wipe us out? Or like, what are the, so then it's like, what are the existential risks, right? Like what could wipe out an entire universe, right? And then, and then the, the, the horror element of it and everything just kept getting darker and darker. Uh, and so I was really trying to play off of, um, I do think there's a self-consciousness in me um, about science fiction because they always say, like, if you in certain stories, if you extract the science out and the story could still work, then it's not science fiction. I think it's a, a snooty thing that writers sometimes say. But I started, you know, I started getting into it and I'm like and I started playing around. So science and technology are kind of, you know, hand in hand sometimes. And so I'm sitting there being like, all right, like, what if I take this technology and humanity and I start mixing it in? So the fact that you rely on this technology is good. Technology is good, right? But then it breaks down sometimes, um, and that's not so good. And maybe, you know, an artificial intelligence is the reason that we're all dead, so that, that makes it really bad. And I, I really like leaving all that stuff up for the player. And I do think that sometimes we pull punches. Like, I think anytime, and to, to Brendan's point, and I think I watched a great YouTube video on this where he talks about shandification, <laughs> um, but he's talking about Fallout uh, 3 versus Fallout New Vegas, and he's talking about how in New Vegas, like, you've got, you know, bovines and, 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 and pens, and, and you can kind of see, like, how they would eat and how they would live, and it makes the world feel real to you. And whenever I'm playing a game, and one of those sort of deus ex machina or, like, you know, just sort of, like, tropey, like, oh, this is really convenient, so let's just throw this in – it breaks the world for me because I'm in that world. So for me, in Duskers, if I was going to pull punches, um, it just felt so wrong because in order for me to feel tense, like, or for me, survival, because the game is sort of a survival game, 
survival is about adapting. You don't have this optimal strategy where you get this gun that you can just shoot forever. Like it's like that runs out of bullets, right? And things break down and you're always just like clawing to get by. And a lot of times you wouldn't. So the more I can kind of push you up against the wall, the more you're going to start thinking of clever solutions and the more you're going to start to feel like I can't make it. Um, which is exactly sort of how it feels. Um, and so I think he's back to his point. It's a, it's about making a believable world and it's about, even if the, even if the world doesn't have all the details in it, it's about making the player believe it's that suspension of disbelief. And so that's what's really important. So if it's an ideal science fiction world, uh, for a setting of a game, I don't know. I do know that for me, it was as far as I could push it to give you a sense of survival and a sense of technology and is that good or bad. I think somebody's technology is going bad now. What was that? <laughs> um, it feels like a good place to leave things off. Congratulations again on all your nominations. Uh, thank you again for joining me. And, yeah, it's uh, really fun for having us. And we will have more creators on in the following weeks to talk about different things like love and sex and politics. But yeah, so be sure to tune in for those. And uh, thanks again to Tim, Sergey, and Brendan. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to the Rock, Paper, Shotgun Electronic Wireless Show, or one of its slightly more different formats, with me, Brendan, and music by Jack DeKeep. We'll be continuing on with this kind of thing in the next few episodes, bunching developers together and talking to them about a particular topic. Next time, we'll have the creators of 1979 Revolution, an adventure game set in Iran, and the creators of Orwell, a game about surveillance and surveillance technology. We'll be talking to them about politics and how it can be represented in games. So I hope that you can join us for that.